5 of chapter 2. You know, whenever we start a new song uh, on Sunday nights, a lot of times I'm like, you know, there's no way I'm ever going to learn this song. But then we learn it, amen? amen? And then we say, hey, well, praise God. And so I appreciate that about, that about Christina. In the beginning, I'm like, man, I don't know how to do this. But then uh, it doesn't take too long, and we, we give God the glory for that. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to be looking um, at verses 5 through 11 to begin with here. Uh, now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. Lord, this evening as we begin uh, this section of Scripture, uh, it's our hope and prayer that you would speak to us in, in deep and, and amazing ways that we've not been spoken to before through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we kind of hit on a little bit of this last week. Uh, if you were here, you, you probably remember. But Paul was dealing with a situation uh, that involved someone in the Corinthian church who had uh, caused some problems there. Uh, most likely, this was a person who had come against Paul. Probably leveled some accusations, probably said some things that, that weren't true about him, all in an attempt to discredit him because we know that there was so much jealousy uh, by preachers of the Word of God, but there was also those who were false teachers and they simply didn't want people uh, to follow after Paul. Um, now, Paul is sure to tell the people here concerning the situation. He says, you know, I'm not grieved. Now, now, notice here that Paul here refuses to name names in this instance, which isn't always true of Paul. There are times when Paul's dealing with a sin, and he'll just call out the person's name. Uh, that's several times in Scripture, but he doesn't do that here. He's only speaking in the situation in part here because he doesn't want to say too much about this issue. That's what that little phrase, not to put it too severely, means. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of reason for him to talk a lot about this event. Uh, the problem had been solved, and as far as Paul was concerned, from his point of view, this problem was, was dropped. It was history. Uh, there's a great point here for you and I to, to think about. Sometimes we think that it's necessary for us to keep talking about our problem. Whatever that problem is. But many times, talking about a problem does not make it better at all. In fact, oftentimes when you continue to talk about a situation, it just makes it worse. We should talk about solutions, no doubt. But to dwell and talk about a problem normally isn't good for you or for those who you're talking to. In fact, talking about our problems often exaggerates them, makes them appear to be bigger than they actually are, and doesn't lead us to a place of hope. It only leads us to a place of worry. And probably all of us have experienced this in our life. Somebody upsets you, somebody makes you mad, and all you can do is talk about them and talk about them and talk about them or talk about that situation over and over, and it never makes you feel better, does it? It never makes you feel better. So Paul was dealing with this situation, probably a person who said awful things about him, and the church keeps talking about it, and Paul says, look, 
It's history. I don't even want to talk about this much at all. I'm only dealing with it because I have to give you a little bit of, uh, of, of leadership, of teaching about this subject. Now, now look at verse 6 here. When he says there, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. The punishment that the church had issued to this individual was sufficient, Paul says here. Now, Paul wasn't upset that the church had used church discipline. He wasn't upset about that at all. He simply said that the, dis- the discipline they had measured out was enough. That word majority there, that refers to the body of believers in the church. They made a united t- decision about this individual. This is a really interesting thing because when you look at this, what this is, is this, a, this is a perfect example of Matthew 18 being used. There was a person who had sinned. Someone went to him. He probably did not immediately uh, repent of that sin. A couple of others went to him. He still wouldn't repent. And so it was brought before the congregation, just like Jesus said it should be, and the church made a decision about what to do about this individual, and evidently it involved some sort of discipline. Was it removing him from a teaching position? Or was it uh, uh, removing him from membership of the church? We're not sure exactly what it was, but they made a decision as a church to deal with this individual, and Paul says they did the right thing. He says it was enough. And if you look at this, the discipline, discipline they did actually worked. Imagine that. They went by the Bible and the Bible worked. Amen? They did what the Bible said to do in this circumstance and God through His grace restored this person. This person repented This person was restored to the church. This is something that I know in in this culture we don't understand as Baptists, but church discipline is a very important ministry of the church. It should be done, but it should always be done with the proper motive, as Galatians 6.1 says, with with the desire of restoration of the individual. In a humble way, we should go to a person who is, who is in sin that is causing uh, disunity in the body or is causing shame to be brought on the body. And it should be our hope and desire to bring that person to a place of repentance. Now, because we live in a culture today that is extremely self-centered and is all about the individual, this type of teaching is absolutely foreign to us. But understand, the teaching of Scripture... When you look at the culture, it's all about a body. Even if you go back to the Old Testament, remember Achan's sin? Remember they're losing all these battles? They're like, why are we losing these battles? And what was it? It was one guy, right? It was one guy named Achan, and what he was doing was causing the whole body to suffer. And that's a beautiful picture of how God creates community. It's a beautiful picture of how God expects His people to be. God is not happy... Just because most of the people in the church aren't living in sin. When a person's living in sin, it's like a sheep that's straying from the fold. And the Scripture says that when a sheep is straying from the fold, what should you do? You should leave the 99, you should go get that sheep, and you should bring that sheep back. And then there should be rejoicing, right? Now I know that what we don't like to do that, and, and, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, and the more I meditated on our passage, I began to understand, I don't know how far I'm going to get. I don't think I'm going to get as far as, as my title here says, because I really wanted to talk about this issue, because I think it's something that, that we need to hear. Uh, but, but the Scripture is really clear. Instead of ignoring when people are living in sin, as Christians, we should deal with it. Amen? Do you know how churches get in a mess? They ignore sin. That's how they get in a mess. 
Things will go okay for a while. And then one day, man, everything's going to come to a screeching halt. The blessing of God is going to be removed from a church. People are not going to have the joy of the Lord. People are going to be fussing. People are going to be complaining. Why? Because it's all flesh. It's all flesh. It's not the Spirit of God at all. And so you see in this circumstances, and I can tell you specific circumstances of when I've had to deal with church discipline in, in ways when it was the biggest giver in the church. And it was scary for a young preacher. But I can also tell you stories of how God, through that process, restored individuals back to the church. In fact, most of the time, whenever I've been involved in the process of church discipline, the people have been restored to the church. There have been times they've took off, but most of the time they've been restored to the church. Why? Because it's the way God says do it. It's the way God says do it, right? Now, let's, let's move on here. Look, look at verse 7. He says, So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excess of sorrow. Now, this was a man who had repented. And Paul said, look, you need to treat him like he's a, a brother. You, you should forgive him. If God forgave this person, you should obviously forgive him. Paul was probably the only one who was directly attacked by this guy. And Paul says, look, I've forgiven him. Now, evidently, there were people in the church who were so upset about what he had done to Paul that they couldn't move on. They couldn't forgive this person. But Paul says, not only should you forgive him, but you should comfort this offender. The term there implies encouragement. In other words, they weren't called to simply tolerate this repentant brother. They were supposed to take an active role in his restoration by encouraging him to live his life for the Lord. We have to be careful in the church that, that we don't give believers who turn from their sin a scarlet letter. Right? We have to forgive. And, and we don't forgive and say, well, I forgive, but I won't forget. No, no, no. When a person truly repents, we treat them as the Lord has treated them. We remove their sin as far as the east is from the west. We treat them in the same way that God treats a sinner who's been restored to Him. Now, if we don't do that, if we treat these people with, with disdain, then we're more pharisaical than we are Christ-like. Now, now, the reason that Paul tells them to do this is given. He says, I don't want this man to be overwhelmed in much sorrow. Swallowed up, the word means, in sorrow. Here's a person who's, who's got sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow. Listen, this is how you know people who are truly saved. Truly saved people are broken over their sin. If a person's not saved, sin doesn't bother them. They'll be very flippant with the way they... Well, you need to just forgive me. Well, you just need to move on. Well, nobody's perfect. They'll say things like that to you if they're not truly a Christian. But a true Christian, when they're, when they're under conviction of the Holy Spirit, they're going to be a broken person. And when a person is broken, it's not our responsibility to break them anymore. God is the one who does the breaking, not us. But if they're treated in an ungodly way by the church, what might it cause? Well, it might cause some problems. Here's a person who could plunge into spiritual depression. Here's a person who could no longer be active in the work of the Lord. A person who may no longer be committed to church attendance. Or, God forbid, may not be honest about his or her sin in the future. Because they're afraid of how they might be treated. 
And so how the church treats sinners is very telling of the depth of their spirituality, isn't it? How the church treats repentant sinners. And so you think about what they were probably doing here. And all we can do is is speculate here, but but I don't think I'm going too far in this speculation. Um, I think that obviously he was being shunned. Amen? I want to tell you Baptist something. Amen? When I say that, you've got to listen up, right? (laughs) Refusing to talk to someone is about one of the worst things you can do to them. Amen? If you're married, you know what I'm talking about. Or if you've ever been married. <laughs> Honey, just tell me your maddest fire at me, alright? Let's get it over with, right? The silent treatment, there's nothing spiritual about it. There's nothing, by the way, mature. Forget spirituality. There's nothing mature about it. And there's certainly nothing biblical about it. So I think one of the things is, he would probably come to church and, and they would just say, well, I'm not talking to him today. And then I probably think there was a little gossip campaign about it. Whisperings. And he probably knew it. Like I told y'all the other day, there are no secrets in the Baptist church. Baptists have been spreading information far before Zuckerberg on Facebook was doing it, okay? Far before. There are no secrets. And I hate to break that to you. And I wish there were, by the way. Because there's a whole lot of stuff I don't want to know, y'all. But there are no secrets there. And I think he was probably kind of a part of a, or not part of, but kind of the, the butt of a, of, of a smear campaign. And so you think about this guy who, yeah, he messed up. He said some terrible things about Paul. He probably said Paul was a false teacher. He was following this group of people over here who were trying to destroy the, the, the church of Corinth. But he got right. Amen? He said, I'm sorry. He said, I was wrong, but people couldn't let it go. And this old boy was so depressed that he was about to be swallowed up. He had no friends at church anymore. No one would sit by him. No one would talk to him. And he was about ready to be swallowed up. Now look at verse 8 here. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Look at that verse, y'all. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. They needed to show their love for this man publicly. Publicly. The discipline they enacted was public. It was a public discipline. The church got together. The majority decided it was the right thing to do. It wasn't against God. It was the right thing to do. It was public. And now the restoration should be public as well. I think it's possible that this man wondered if anybody in the church even loved him anymore. You hear me? I really believe he wondered, you know, I don't even think anybody loves me at this church anymore. Certainly relationships are different than they had been in the past. So Paul tells him, you need to publicly love this man. You need to reaffirm your love toward him. You know, the, the idea behind that word is to make official. Reaffirm, it's to make official. So how could they make that official? Um... Is Paul saying, hey, you should have some type of courage, I'm sorry, some type of service where the pastor of the church stands up and says, look, brother, we want you to know that we love you, 
that we're grateful for what God's doing in your life and that we have forgiven you and we, we move on from this, maybe then there will be no doubt about how the church felt about it. But maybe there's even a better way than that. Maybe it's all of a sudden these people who refuse to talk to Him publicly and in front of everyone else walk over and begin to talk to Him. Amen? Take Him by the hand. In those days, it was greet one another with a holy kiss to show some sort of encouragement. And maybe another one comes. And then somebody in the congregation says, sees, well, so-and-so came up and he was mad as fire at him. And look, maybe I need to go up there too. Maybe I need to go talk to him. Maybe I need to shake his hand. Maybe I need to hug his neck. Maybe I need to tell him that I love him and I'm so sorry that, that all of this stuff happened. Whatever it is, it's some sort of public statement that he's telling these Corinthians to make concerning this man. In other words, don't let this be something that's hidden because you guys have not hidden the fact that you can't stand him. Amen. You haven't hidden the fact that you can't stand him, so don't hide the apology. Reaffirm it. Make it official. Do it public. It's so interesting, this section of Scripture, isn't it? You don't normally see this in, in, in Paul's writings. Now look at verse 9. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. You know, last week we talked about the uh, sorrowful letter that was written between 1st and 2nd Corinthians that we don't have a copy of. And he wrote the letter for one to see if the Corinthians would obey his teachings. And the testimony that Paul received after they received that letter was a comforting letter. When you go to chapter 7 and verse 6 of this book, you can see that. So they must have responded in the right way. We need to remember that our actions are more telling than our words. The proof of our obedience is action. The proof of our obedience is action. We have to understand that. That it's not enough, you know, in a, in a service to get sentimental. You know, we hear the service and we get sentimental. And, and somehow we trick ourselves into thinking, well, I've repented of this behavior because I got so sentimental in service. No, it's not really repentance until you undo what you've done. To the best, some things we can't undo. I understand that. But to the best of our ability, there are times when we have to undo what we've done. And we have to do it publicly. And you know, I've said this before in, 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 in a few different ways, but, but I tell you, there, there are some churches that would experience revival. If one person on this side of the church and one person on that side of the church that haven't spoke to each other in 10 years and have been going to the same church and everybody knows they can't stand each other, but then they come in the middle and they hug and they tell each other they love each other and they tell each other they forgive each other, revival break out in the church. But you'd be amazed at how long Baptists can go to church together and never speak to one another. And if you think that's spiritual, your spirituality is absolutely weak, anemic, not found in the New Testament. Amen? Not at all. If you want to know how powerful forgiveness is, if you are... And it is forgiveness. The power of God through this, this means of forgiveness here. But if you want to know how hard it is, I want you to think about this. Think about how hard it is to do it. Amen. That just kind of gives you an idea about the power behind it. Think of how hard it is just to get up the confidence to tell yourself, you know what, I'm going to make this right. And, to go, and here's the sad part. There's a lot of people who've never done that. 
I want to tell you, if never in your Christian life, you have never walked up to a brother or sister that you're not kin to and said, I was wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me, then you're doing it wrong. If that's never happened to you, you're either Jesus or you've, you're doing it wrong. Because I would tell you, everybody in this room has wronged a brother or sister in Christ. Amen. And it's the hardest thing to do. But you know what? When you're a Christian, you know what the easiest thing to do is? To look at that person and say, I forgive you. Because you just did all the hard work. Amen. You just did all the hard work. Forgiving that person is a lot easier. Why? Because you're now looking at that person in a proper way. I'm not saying you're always forgiven every time somebody does that because that's not necessarily the case. It certainly isn't. There are people who are just either lost or they're so caught up in carnality that they won't forgive you. And if that's the situation, it doesn't matter because you've done your part. Amen? You've done your part. You've come to them and you've asked for their forgiveness. So the proof of our obedience is not in sentiment. It's not in being emotional. The proof is, for these people, they got up after they heard what Paul said, and they went to the brother and they said, Man, I haven't talked to you in six months. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. That was the proof of their obedience. Look at verse 10. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, um, he's forgiven the man just as they have. That little phrase, if I have forgiven anything, is close to the same meaning as you saw back in verse 5. The idea here is Paul wasn't bitter. The truth is Paul didn't have anything to forgive because Paul had already forgiven. But for the sake of the Corinthians, he's saying to them, okay, you forgive them, I forgive them, we all forgive them. The reality was Paul had already forgiven them, but, but he didn't, so he didn't really have anything to forgive. But to make things a little bit easier, he said, well, we'll just all forgive him. We'll all forgive him together. And so there can be no questions now. The sin was against Paul. Paul forgave the man. Paul's desire was that the church be united. Paul's desire was that the church be filled with love. And so he was willing simply to say, I forgive him. You know, he wasn't holding on to any unforgiveness in his heart. Which, by the way, I mean, think about how Paul could have, have responded to this whole situation. Paul could have said, I got the church on my side. You just get out of here and I can't stand you. and just, You just move on. Paul could have done that, couldn't he? Because he had the church on his side. But that wasn't the way he responded. He said, no, guys, let's forgive. Let's forgive and let's embrace and let's come back because this is what God would have us to do. And Paul said he did this in the presence of Christ. You know, Paul was convinced that he was always in the presence of Christ. And it was his understanding, his constant Christ consciousness, to keep it alliterated. His, his understanding that he was always in the presence of Christ that moved him to say things like this. Forgive one another. Embrace one another. And as Christians, we live in the very presence of Christ, don't we? 
We always live in the presence of Christ. He said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Now, when we think about that, we always think about, well, when I'm going through a trial, He's with me. And that's true. But He's not just with you when you're going through a trial. He's with you constantly, every day, in everything that you do. He's watching you. He knows everything. So don't just think about that. Well, Christ is here when I need Him. No, Christ is there when you forget He's there. And you start talking in ways you shouldn't talk because you forgot He was there, right? And you start doing the way you shouldn't do because you forgot He was there. He's always there. And so Paul says, look, we are in the constant presence of Christ. He is watching how we respond to this man. He is watching to see if, if we forgive him, if we restore him. And this man is broken and this man is repentant. And who are we not to forgive him? That reality of being in the constant presence of Christ, church, should urge us down the road of obedience, even when obedience is difficult like it is right here. Now look at verse 11. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. I I love the fact that Paul here, he, he gives us a warning. He says, if you guys don't forgive, you are opening up the door to Satan. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? It's like going to the front door of the church, throwing the door open and saying, Hey, Satan, come on in! Now, none of you would do that. We'd have to have our own little meeting of the majority if you did, right? But Paul's saying that's essentially what you're doing. When you're holding on to bitterness, when you're holding on to unforgiveness, that is what you are doing because you are in the church, because you are as a body the church and the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. Whenever you entertain the roots of bitterness and unforgiveness, you are inviting Satan not just into your life, but into the whole body of believers, aren't you? You know, self-righteous believers don't understand that Satan can use them in so many ways. He can kill a church by filling believers with an attitude of unforgiveness. You know, an unforgiving church does damage to the body of Christ. And, and, And I want you to think about this. One of Satan's strategies with believers is to get them to be so self-righteous that they have no pity or no love toward other sinners. Right? Because you get a church like that, and I want to tell you something, they're not going to do anything for the kingdom of God. Amen? They might grow, they might fill it up, but as far as people learning to live like Christ, people people taking on the the characteristics of a Christ-like attitude, that's not going to happen. That word designs he used there is is noema in the Greek, N-O-E-M-A. And it means thought or a concept of the mind. And the idea here is Satan is not mindless. Satan has a brain. Satan is smart. You know, think about all you've learned. Some of you are are 20, 30, 40, 50, 100. I don't know how old you are, but some of y'all have been here for a while. And think about what you knew at 20. You didn't know nothing. And you still don't know much. But when you think about how much more you know right now that you've gained in the last 50, 60, whatever years, you think, man, I'm a genius compared to the young me, right? Now I want you to think about Satan who's been roaming this earth for thousands of years. 
If you don't think he knows how to catch a fish, you've lost your mind. He knows how to catch one. He knows how to do it. He has a mind. And he schemes. And the interesting thing is, when you look back in history, even though people change as far as their surroundings, their technology and stuff like that, really the schemes of Satan don't change much at all. Because people are people. And he knows that one of the perfect ways to get people to turn away from God is to fill people who say they belong to God with unforgiveness. Because if God's people are unforgiving, I'm about to say something to you. Listen to me now. If God's people are unforgiving, the world will think God is too. And why would you ever come to a God who wouldn't forgive you? Amen? And so Satan says, hey, look at this God. This is not a God of forgiveness. This is not a God of mercy. They can't even forgive each other. His people can't even forgive each other. Are you going to believe this idea? That God's forgiving? You know, we have to be really careful not to fall into Satan's trap. We have to be full of forgiveness. You know, when it, there, there's these two extremes. There's this extreme where we never want to talk to anyone about their sin. And when we do that, the church ends up weak, dead, unable to do anything for God. And then there's the other side way over here. Where when somebody does us wrong, we don't ever want to talk to them again. Right? And there's somewhere down here in the middle y'all we're supposed to be, Okay? Where we deal with sin that brings shame to the church. That brings harm to the body. But when they repent, we forgive them. We love them. I want you to think about our culture right now. We live in a culture of blame and unforgiveness, don't we? The, the social justice movement that you see going on in the United States of America is unlike anything I've seen when it comes to unforgiveness. Uh, this idea that, that because of a person's skin color, uh, these people will always be oppressors and they should, that they should uh, be avoided and, and they should continue to have to atone for the sins of generations and generations and generations of people. And that, that, that rings true in the sinner's heart. They think, yeah, 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 because remember, the, the unsaved man is all about pitchforks, isn't it? Let's get them, let's get them, let's get them. And we live in that culture and it works. That's why people are so angry on social media. That's why there's so much hate in our world today. God says, look, the children's teeth are not set on edge because their fathers ate sour grapes. You say, I don't know what that means, Brother God. It means this. You don't blame one generation for the sins of another. But we live in a culture that does that right now, don't we? And they're pushing that. And the reason that resonates with so many people is because that's how we want to be in our unredeemed self. That's how we want to be. We just want to be mad at people. And we don't want to forgive people. And we don't want to love people. And we don't want to fellowship with people. But I will tell you, you are never more like the devil when that is your mindset. The devil's never forgiven a single person. Not a single one. And when you refuse, you are far more like Him than you are Christ. Let me give you a few thoughts. We'll be done. Number one, 
Sin should offend the church because it offends God. Sin should offend the church because it offends God. Don't miss this. This whole sermon was brought about because there was a sin in the church. The church dealt with it like they were supposed to, but then after they dealt with it is where they messed up. We should never read a text like this and think, well, the church shouldn't deal with sin. No, the church has to deal with sin. But it has to do so in a godly way. And, 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 and sin should offend the church for the simple reason that it offends God. The second thing I want you to get out of this section tonight is church discipline works if done in the proper way. Church discipline works if done in the proper way. You can either ignore sin and let your church become overtaken by it, or you can deal with sin, and you can deal with it in the proper way. And the wonderful thing is, it is laid out for us line by line in the Word of God. And your Baptist forefathers and foremothers knew all about it. That's why it's in your bylaws. Amen? That's why almost every Southern Baptist is going to have their bylaws. Why? Because they used to do it, right? Why did they used to do it? Because they were mean? No. They didn't used to do it because they were mean. They used to do it because they used to go by the Bible. That's why they used to do it. Church discipline works if done in the proper way. Number three, sin in a believer's life should primarily move us to pity and compassion. When we see a person in sin, our heart should break. Our heart should break. We, we should be moved with compassion toward them. You need to repent, friend. You need to turn from this sin, friend. And that's the topic of compassion. Because by the way, to let a person live in sin is not compassion. It's not compassion at all. It's like watching a person take a shot glass filled with poison and put it to their lips and drink it. And you, and you don't say anything about it. Number four. God wants to see proof of our forgiveness. Okay, you say, I've forgiven somebody. Where's the proof? Amen? If you still can't look at them, you didn't forgive them. Amen? If you still can't say their name, you didn't forgive them. If you still won't talk to them, you didn't forgive them. Are there extreme cases where somebody has done something so terrible with you, you have to separate yourself, they've abused you, they've done some terrible and godly action towards you, some crime? Oh yeah, there, there are those times. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm talking Baptist stuff here. Amen? Number five, Satan has two strategies. Number one, get the church to love sin. If he can get the church to love sin and ignore it, he can go on vacation from your church. Or number two, get the church to hate sinners. Isn't that interesting? Two strategies. Get the church to hate sin or get the church to hate sinners. Hey, either one will work. Either one will work. Folks, God has called us to be like Jesus. What did Jesus do? He spoke to people of their sin and urged them to repent. And when they did, what did He do? He received them. And He forgave them. And He loved them.
I had an idea I wasn't going to get as far as I, to the wonderful victory in Jesus exciting sermon I thought we had tonight. But this is victory too, isn't it? You want to win a victory? Forgive somebody. Forgive somebody. Father in heaven, we do love you. We're grateful for all we have in Christ. We're grateful for these words.